Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, July the 28th, 2021. This is episode 2923 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I'm about to bring a guy on named Mark Brown. Mark is a really interesting guy. He is the founder of a thing called Headwaters Academy. It is... A modern school that's also bringing back the kind of one-room schoolhouse model. It's a private institution located up in Canada. And even though I would say 99% of you couldn't send your kid there if you wanted to, I think you're going to love listening to this podcast. I think even if you don't have kids, you're going to love listening to this podcast. I think that the education system, a.k.a. the indoctrination system, is something that affects all of us. And as much as I'm an advocate for homeschooling, and I really think it's one of the best things that the most people can do, it's not something everybody can do. And I, what I think we need in, in a world as complex as educating our children as many options as possible, and as we go through the option that Mark has created, we're going to discover a lot of things today. This is really a conversation with great discovery in it. He, I try to get really great things out of my guests Sometimes my guests get things out of me that I didn't even know that I knew. Both, so this went both ways in this. This was a fantastic interview. I'll bring on Mark in just a minute so we can talk about it. Before that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is, is a guy I've learned a lot from, John Pugliano over at the Wealth Steading Podcast. You guys want to check out what John's doing. If you're not a subscriber yet to the Wealth Steading Podcast, you should be. Uh, you, you, you really, I mean, the guy has, put so much effort into developing his knowledge set and the fact that you know he's an investment manager but he's willing to share the things that he's doing with his clients with you he's willing to share the insights and the decision making process that he's managing money with with you and that's just not something you should walk away from lightly you should you should gain this information and knowledge while you can Uh, check him out again. It's called the Wealth Steading Podcast, located, of course, at wealthsteading.com. Next up today is knifekits.com. I've, I've been working with knife kits since two, I looked it up today to be sure I was right. 2010. 2010. It's 2021. 11 years they've been sponsoring this show. They're a fantastic company. They're the one sponsor I can say. I've had a lot of great sponsors. I've had a lot of great sponsors. Occasionally a complaint comes in, they fix it and make it right. That's all you can ask for from anybody. Knifekits.com has been a sponsor for 11 years. I've literally never had a complaint. Not a single one. I've never had to reach out to Steve over there and say, hey, fix this. Not once. That's, that's pretty impressive. Check them out today. And, you know, like I say when I talk about them all the time, what a great project for you and your son or your daughter or your grandson or granddaughter or nephew or niece or what have you to do together. I mean, it's obviously something anybody can do on their own. But I'll tell you what, um, occasionally I talk about both my grandfathers uh, on, on the show in different ways because they were different men from different backgrounds. But if I had a knife that I had built with either of those men, there is not anything anybody could do to get me to part with it. Sadly, I don't. I don't have anything like that from either of them. You have an opportunity to build something with your, you know, your again, your, your kids, your grandkids, your niece, nephew, that can be that. 
Because it won't matter if it's your first one. It doesn't look really super great. It will still be something you did together. And knives are something that even if they're not perfect, even if they're not Patrick Roman MT knives quality, um, they last. They get handed down. They stick around. Uh, so check it out today, knifekits.com, and it is just a great way to get started building knives. Uh, it can become a side hustle. It can become a hobby. For some people, it becomes a full-time business, knifekits.com. All right, and with that, let's. Uh, before I get Mark on, I wanted to give you guys a quote today. Um, a big part of what Mark does involves getting the kids outside, getting the kids uh, to get their hands dirty, uh, to do homesteading-type things, to work on motors, all types of things. And I think the the quote that came to me to me instantly when I thought about doing this today was uh, one of my greatest mentors is Jeff Lawton from the permaculture world. His quote is, the forest is our greatest teacher. And that his belief is that when we really need to learn a thing and we're, we're, we're you know, kind of meditating on it, the place to do that is in the forest and we will find the answers there to all things that people need. I really believe that. And I think we can take that beyond just the forest. That, that all the answers we really seek are out in the world. They're not in a room. A room is just one place that we take them in from. And with that, let's go ahead and get our special guest on, Mark Brown. Um, he's an Ironman triathlete, pilot, World Cup, mountain bike coach, maple syrup producer, and most importantly, principal and founder of Headwaters Academy in rural Ontario, Canada. With that, hey, Mark, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Hey, man, I'm glad to have you on today. Um, this is an awesome topic. You know I am huge on education as a whole, taking responsibility for your, your kids' education personally, uh, getting them out of systems of indoctrination, and I'm really excited to talk to you uh, about the work that you're doing uh, with Headwaters Academy today. But can we start out with, like, kind of what's your background? Like, how did you end up in a place in life where you decided to do something about education as it relates to our children? Well, I'm a small-town boy. I grew up in uh, rural Ontario, actually, uh, about 10 kilometers from where Headwaters Academy is now. And, um, you know, getting into education, I never thought that would be me um, because with the exception of my third-grade teacher um, and a couple others, you know, I really – I didn't like teachers, um, and it goes back to like my biggest memory is a fourth grade instance where we were doing long division, um, and the teacher was going through the algorithm for long division, and I simply asked, well, why does that particular number go there? I believe it was you know, the answer going on top of that division bar, as I would have known it at that time, and uh, she looked at me, and she said, get out. And she sent me out of the classroom. Um, and, you know, I, I just remember a great amount of confusion, um, uh, a great amount of shame, actually, uh, um, being sent out of the classroom when really, honestly, what I wanted to know was why. Um, and the truth was that teacher didn't know. Um, and from that moment forward, um, we kind of had a, a bit of a, I, I guess I had a bad relationship with school. Um, I did quite well. Um, it was for me. Um, but I realized that this was a place, um, that was more about followership and, and certainly not asking questions that a teacher might not know. Her appropriate answer would have been, I don't know, but let's find out together. Um, but that's not what she did. So, 
you know, fast forward quite a few years, you know, I, I escaped um, my hometown via hockey. I wasn't a talented player, but I was a hard worker. And um, I certainly uh, went with the, uh, you know, on, on the ice, it's kill or be killed. And, and I was good at that. Um, so I ended up uh, coaching hockey all through university and uh, landed at the Culver Military Academy in Indiana, um, coaching hockey in the summer. And it was at Culver Academy that uh, I saw education done largely right. Um, I give a huge amount of credit to uh, to the academy. Um, it was there that I saw responsibility being taught and given to students. You know, we had cadets walking around with swords and uh, and you know trusting them with with potentially dangerous items, um, and also trusting them to lead themselves. Um, it's where I saw that, uh, a military structure wasn't followership, but was actually leadership by learning to follow first. And most importantly, I think the academy is the first place where I went out of my hockey realm, you know, and I became friends with, uh, actually he was a major in Iraq, but we ran in the mornings. Um, he was into aviation and I started my pilot's license and I met the theater guy, and I had good friends with the theater guy, and I met this wonderful diversity of people um, that weren't on that same athletic path that I was. Um, and then that informed my teaching practice when I took my first job in Toronto. Um, and I found that these children whom I hadn't hung out with when I was a kid, they were the kids um, that were gravitating towards me um, as a teacher. And, and obviously, I saw you know this incredible um, value in what I was doing, and Fast forward 10 years from there, and I realized that education wasn't working. You know, like your podcast says, we had kids that were being graduated. They couldn't even know where their food came from, let alone cook it or grow it. Um, I, even as an academic at that point, couldn't build my own deck. Um, you know, I had three degrees, and I couldn't build a deck. Um, you know, and we, you know, all these people couldn't fix anything in their homes. They couldn't even deal with a flat tire and, you know, let alone know what a dollar is, um, actually is or balance a bank account. So for all those reasons, I said, you know what, this system isn't working and I need to do something to either get out of it or to make it better. And, uh, that brought me around to founding the school. Yeah. Now you've kind of mentioned the concepts of self-reliance and self-sufficiency are key constructs to your school and your work. How do you teach that specifically to young people? Well, it's an attitude that we have. Um, with self-sufficiency um, in particular, you know, we, we look at whatever it is somebody's doing, we, we want to be able to say, I can do that or I can learn that. Um, and we want our students to do that. So one of our very purposeful commitments is to get them out into the community. Um, we get out of the school at least once per week, um, and we go out and see what people are doing. And not just a trip to the museum, although that's one of the things we do, but we'll take a trip to the seniors' home, and we'll talk about what life was like growing up for them. We'll take a trip. Um, actually, this fall, our first unit's going to be small engines. Um, so we have several trips to um, a mechanics um, shop where we'll work alongside the mechanics. Um, the students in the past have looked at um, – actually, we were doing one on bread, and then they, they took it back to wheat, and they wanted to know how the wheat farmers were going, and we got into even milling our own wheat. Um, you know, we've, we've done a number of things like that, 
And what they realize is when they want to learn to do something, they're not reliant on their teachers. They're not reliant on me. They're not reliant on my other teachers. Um, they are, however, able to go to the community and find out. So, you know, a telephone is a big part of our classroom in the sense that they will pick up the phone and call somebody. Um, I had a student actually arrange a field trip to a, um, a dairy sheep producer. Um, and, uh, and I had to call him back and say, yeah, that, you know, that nine year old you were just talking to, literally we are going to come if that's okay. And then he was so impressed. Um, so they realized that the answers aren't necessarily on Google, although they can do that like everybody else, but the true expertise is out in their community. Um, and that way I think that they become much more self-sufficient. Um, the second thing that happens at our school is resilience though. Um, and that is by letting the kids fail. Um, and it was really something that I surprised myself with. You know, I remember, um, there was a moment where they were running and as we're a small school, we didn't really have to qualify for the, uh, the track championship, but I want them to hit qualifying standards and they were working their butts off. And I think two out of the eight that were running made the standard and the other six, they said that I make the standard and I just said no. And in today's age, you know, you, you, most teachers wouldn't do that. They'd, they'd couch it in something more fluffy. And I said, no, you didn't make the standard. Um, and they looked at me and they said, well, can we try again tomorrow? And I realized that what we're doing by letting them fail um, is making them realize that by continuing to work at it, they can succeed. Um, and it's funny, that running topic, we do run a mile every morning. Um, I run as hard as I can go at my age. Um, and, you know, I'm not a horrible athlete. I'm not an excellent athlete, but it's enough. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm going out near the front most days and it seems awful, but what happens is eventually the children beat me and they realize that they've achieved something and then they want to find somebody else that they can go faster than as well. Um, and it's just, you know, it's such a small thing, but it's such a big thing for us to be able to have real standards and, uh, to really actually compete in the morning as well. I think there's a huge lesson from being allowed to fail, and part of that lesson is you can work harder and succeed, maybe, but if you look at something like athletics, so there are people that are naturally athletic, there are people that are okay athletically that if they try really hard they can do better, and there are people that are never going to be a fast runner, or never going to be a good distance runner, or whatever it is, like, that's that's a thing, and there are people that are really good at one sport, but are never going to be good at another being allowed to fail lets you realize just because you like the idea of something doesn't mean that you're going to be good at it. And to go find what you you do like the idea of and you are good at. Because we're not all the same. And this idea that somehow we should is, is literally, to me, it's a toxic poison in, in the minds of our youth that they even think this way. It's not their fault. We did it. And when I say we, you know what I mean. I mean the grander macro of, of humanity. We did this to them. But they're... That, and when your story is actually validates my point in that kids have not become weaker. We've conditioned a society that results in weaker children because your children didn't dry up, blow away, and die when you told them, no, you failed. That's right. And, and we've, you know, it, this concept that everybody can achieve is true. We can all achieve better than we are, but we're not all going to be excellent. I coach a World Cup mountain biker. They know that the likelihood of them getting there is is not high, but it's possible. 
and also by having different things in like we we do have math class of course and we do have science and we have different times that people can excel and we don't value one type of excellence over another um and and therefore you know there is a chance to be really really cruddy at something um and that's okay you know and and they've come to accept that so yeah i think you're absolutely right that you know, this concept that everybody has a voice is important. They do all have a voice, but we shouldn't always listen to every single voice um, because some of them might not be right. Um, and, and we're trying to, you know, give that judgment to the students as well. So your school isn't like Montessori. It's not International Baccalaureate. It's not Waldorf. It's not a homeschool. I mean, I talk about doing homeschooling all the time. That's not your thing. What exactly are you? That was probably one of the largest challenges in moving beyond these models. Um, I've worked at a Montessori school. I've worked in an international baccalaureate. I've worked in Ontario public school. Um, and you get boxed in by those models. And actually, my principal in – I actually had a school in Bermuda for a while, and the principal there was one of the founders of the IB. And he said it's not what it was supposed to be. It got way off track. So I wanted to open a school that was right. And that meant that we would take a little bit of each of those models potentially, the best of it, but do our own thing. And therefore, we didn't have you know, a, a piece that we could promote you know, parents, you know, they go on Google and, and they see these models of education and, and they try to pick the best model. Well, no matter what model it is, if it's a specific, you know, framework, it's not going to fit your kid. It's highly unlikely to fit your kid because nobody sitting in an office 200 kilometers or, you know, 500 kilometers or miles, whatever you want to talk about, away from where your child is being educated is going to be able to define what they should learn, how they should learn it, and when they should learn it. So we have a few schools that we say we're kind of like, like the Green School in Bali in that, you know, we are very outdoors. Um, we're like a, as a school in British Columbia called Coast Mountain Academy. We're like that. You know, I think there's pieces of culver in us. But we're a school where children succeed. And they succeed because we – let them fail, like I said, and because we challenge them and we connect them. Um, and so that, you know, I, it's funny. It's an interesting question, and it's one that we've struggled with. Now we're going into year five. Um, we just posted a YouTube video um, recently, you know, where parents are better able to describe what it is that we are. Um, and one of the things we are is small classes. You know, you can't teach a kid you don't know. So when you talk about homeschool, um, one of the biggest values there is that that child is right across from you and that child is somebody you know and you can pick up the nuances on their learning. There's no possible way to do that in a group of 20 kids or more. Um, I taught in those situations for 10 years. I'm dedicated to it, but I'm telling you the truth. Over Christmas holiday, I would forget three or four children's names because they were the ones that were just doing what they were supposed to or they were unremarkable in terms of, you know, the general classroom society. And that's wrong because they were remarkable. I just didn't know them, and I couldn't because I didn't have the time. Yeah, so and the ones you, you know, I know who the ones you were you never forgot, too. 
The ones that were constant disruptor problems. You'll never forget that one. And you're thinking, oh, God, I don't want to go back to school and deal with Tommy. Right? That's the one you didn't forget, right? Those are actually the kids that I really enjoyed. Um, (laughs) Okay. Yes, they're the kids that um, most teachers would rather not have in their classroom. Um, And they were the ones bound for success, to be honest. Um, But, uh, yeah, so we, we went with eight kids. You know, eight kids per class because... There was no research around it, to be honest. We looked. There was nothing around it. Nobody had tried that. The economic model of that is challenging. But we thought about a dinner party. You know, if you have more than eight people, that was about where we figured you wouldn't get hurt or you wouldn't be able to talk to everybody. So we went with that number. Well, yeah. um, It does seem economically challenging, though, right? Like that's – and I mean I think the problem's worse than, you know, people think too because you say 20 children. Okay, that's one thing. And – you know, class sizes were in that 20 to 24 range when I was in grade school. And by the time you're like in fourth or fifth grade, you have like two teachers. So a teacher's dealing with two classes of 20 uh, some odd kids. That's challenging. But by the time I was in high school, I had class sizes that were 30, 40, 50 kids. And that teacher was teaching six different classes a day. That's 300 kids. I mean,. There's no way. There's no possible way. And I get way bigger class sizes at a time. You're in like a university situation. You're supposed to be on your own in university. And part of the problem is a lot of people are going that don't belong there that can't be on their own. But when you're talking kids that are in, ninth ninth graders are like 14. And they do need that individual attention. And you got a teacher dealing with 300 students per semester. There's no way. That's, I, I, I defy anybody to tell me that they remember all 300 of their kids that, that, that was a teacher. No way. Yeah, it's an entirely economic model, and it's full of waste. Um, it's top-heavy. Um, it is challenging for us. We don't have, you know, like I am legally the principal. Um, I don't refer to myself as that. Okay. Um we don't have somebody sitting in an office that, you know, is going to sit there and deal with booking our buses and, <laughs> um, you know, running the files and things like that. But the truth is a lot of that stuff that goes on, we really don't need in schools. What we need is people who want to be there and work with kids. And so everybody that's on our staff is working with the kids and we just don't have some of those niceties. Um, but what we do have is a lot of success and a, and a lot of community. Um, and, and that, you know, it is tight, but it was, it's, it's by far our biggest, um, investment as far as the economic side of the school goes, but it's by far our best. You know, there, there has to be ridiculous overhead. I'm thinking all the way back to the eighties here when I was in high school. So that's a, that's a little while ago. Um, I remember I had a guidance counselor. Don't ask me his name. I do know I spoke to him twice in four years for maybe five minutes each time. I don't remember what we talked about, except that I did speak to him again when I was a senior. And he told he asked me what I was doing when I got out of school, and I said I joined the Army. He said, okay. Like, so, like, it was a, well, I'm done, <laughs> right? Like, so, I, I, you know, this guy is, is carrying a salary, and I'm not saying a guidance counselor can't be valuable, but I'm just saying he wasn't. He brought no value to me whatsoever at all. And if, if it was possible for me to spend a lot of time talking to the guy, no one ever told me that. And when you're, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't even, in a school, 
you do what you're told. So unless somebody says, hey, you know what, you should go talk to the guidance counselor more. I have no idea if that was even possible. But that's just one example. We had a dean of students. We had a vice principal. We had a principal. Um, I'm sure that the school district had a whole layer of bureaucracy in it as well. And that was a relatively small school in a rural area of Pennsylvania in the 80s. When I look at, like, they just spent $50 million building a high school down in Mansfield about 15 years ago. I, I can't even get my head around the overhead that they're building into these institutions now. $50 million for a high school. <laughs> yeah, some of that overhead is unavoidable. Like, you know, our second highest expenditure, aside from, obviously, salaries, is our location. We're on okay. 160 acres yeah. in a beautiful place. But... You know, the the more layers of people we get, the less accountability there is in the system. You know, that guidance counselor was talking to 300 kids, and if any one of them skidded off the rails, that was one of 300. Yeah. You know, in our situation, the accountability is right there. Those kids are right in front of me every day. They're right in front of my other teachers every day. And if they start to skid, we see it. And most teachers care about that. You know, I don't want to throw an entire profession under the bus, but they're in a they're in a situation that they cannot succeed. Um, I have teachers that are with me love the fact that they're here at uh, Headwaters Academy because they can make that difference and they can stop that skid if they see that skid at all. Frankly, we see a lot of success, but you know, we know, you know, we we know how our students are doing, and that level of accountability is is almost inherent. And implicit in what we do um, versus somebody that has a, a student load of even 40. I mean, you, you can't be accountable to that. It's too difficult. No, I agree. I, I try to always criticize the system over the individual. I, I kind of like in being a teacher in the educational system today, especially in public school, is you are handed a five-gallon bucket, they point at a swimming pool, and they say, drain the pool. And as much as it sucks, okay. And you start bucketing water out of the pool. And while you're bucketing water out of the pool, some, some ass clown goes around the other side of the pool, chunks a garden hose in it, turns the water on. And, and then you find out when you leave, the water hose keeps running. And you come back the next day, and the pool's back to where it was when you started. I think that if you're trying to handle that many students, that's what we've done to people. And, again, I don't have a solution for it other than get your kids out of there and use an alternative. Yes, I'm big on homeschooling, but I'm, I'm actually more on we should have as many alternatives as are necessary to serve the market, and right now we don't. Absolutely correct. And, and people aren't aware um, that there are options out there. You know, they've been um, mind uh, – <laughs> What do they call that? Just a sheep, I guess, you know, that this is the way that we all operate. Well, it doesn't have to be, you know, and obviously that's what your show's about and that's what this audience is about. But, um, you know, the number of parents that came to us over the past four years with their kids and said, I wish I'd known about you, you know, when my child was five, you know, that's at least half of our parent population. It is tough to get the word out that, you know, there are other options. Um, it has been one of our challenges, actually. Uh, you know, what are your other challenges? I mean, again, I think, like, what, what's tuition? Like, how do you manage to serve uh, a classroom environment, eight students to a teacher? And, and, and is there anything else that's been particularly challenging? Um, well, you know, our, our tuition is, um, you know, it's 17000 Canadian dollars uh, for the year, so I don't mind throwing that out there. But, um, you know, 
I would say other than that, you know, like really it's students, it's parents, um, it's teachers, it's facility, which doesn't, you know, provide that much challenge and, and community, right? And one of the things when you move away from those models, when you don't have the International Baccalaureate or you don't have a Montessori or, you know, we largely follow as, you know, a basic guideline, the Ontario curriculum, but I'm the first to say, look, there's something like 7,000 expectations in there and some of them aren't important and we don't do them all. Um, and a parent will say, well, but what if, you know, and, and what if they need to know, um, you know, I'll, I'll use a, a Canadian example here, but what Jacques Cartier did in Quebec in 1534 or whatever year it was, you know, that is so obviously a Googleable fact that isn't important, but they get worried that maybe, you know, they, they didn't get that little piece. And so what we end up having to do is a big challenge is, is writing down what it is our students are learning. Because if I take them to this small engines unit in the fall, I mean, you and I can just sit here and imagine the things that can be learned from that, you know, from combustion to uh, friction to, um, yeah, I, it's, my mind's blown until I actually sit and write it down. But there's so much in that um, that they're going to learn. How do we record that and then match it up with an existing curriculum? Our parents do like to see that. Um, I have a teacher named Katie that does a, a fantastic job of that, and that has been a challenge. Um, but now what we do is we, we put that learning, we take pictures, we put that learning into these giant books. The curriculum's right there, um, and they were extremely popular when they first came out. And then eventually the parents just kind of go, oh, and they trust, you know what? Not only is my kid not missing anything, by learning this way, they're actually gaining so much more because there's something for that learning to, you know, to hang on. You know, if, if we're going to talk about pistons, and I know that uh, we've had a snowmobile um, donated to us that needs its its rings replaced, right? So there's going to be an oil pump, I'm assuming, involved in that, and um, we're going to have to have the circumference of those um, pistons in order to order the right rings, and, and we're going to have specific tools, and we're going to have to talk to specific people, make orders, we're going to have to make sure it financially make sense for um, the school to fix this snowmobile and, and then hopefully, you know, sell it or maybe one of the students will want to take it. I don't know. But, um, you know, there's so much in that that the amount of time we have to take to define it um, unfortunately takes away from what we do. But then a kid goes home like we just did a Facebook post recently and, uh, um, you know, one of my seven-year-olds is, uh, you know, the family had a flat tire and, and he's changing it. <laughs> so, um, you know, the the value of what they're getting um, is so much higher, um, and and therefore you know let's just take some of these challenges that are inherent in doing something on your own and and kind of uh, I wouldn't say gloss over them but get past them. You know, and I know some people might kind of choke when they hear like 17k Canadian um, doing the cur currency conversions about 13.5 U.S. dollars. State of Texas spends a little over 15,000 dollars a year per student provides a subpar education, and we're constantly told that's not enough money. It's 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 actually a little more than than now. I and but people think well, it's free or whatever, but no, it's not. That money's being taken from society at large uh, by mandate with force and being spent, in my opinion, incredibly poorly. And you know, I think that there's a place in this world for homeschooling. What I do with my grandchildren are very affordable. It works for us because we have the time to do it. Um, there's probably schools that can do a great job that charge less than what you charge, probably some that charge about the same, some that charge more. 
And I just think that people need to start looking at the idea that we should have a choice in how our children are educated. You know, I, I, I really do. Because parents would, would, you know, maybe, like I said, if they're not well-to-do, might choke on that number. However, that's what's being spent on their child anyway. And in some places, it's a lot more. Like I said, we're, we're constantly told we're lagging behind in Texas because we're only spending that much per child. And like I said, when I look at the overhead here, it, it, it kind of sickens me. And then when I look at the fact that parents literally have no say, and, and they should, I mean, that should be obvious to everyone now. Regardless of what you think about some of these new curriculums, the fact that parents are basically told to shut up when they come to school board meetings tells me that they, they don't care what parents have to say. And whenever they say they want parents involved, it seems to me what, like what they mean by that is they want you to make the kid do what the teacher says. It, it doesn't seem like they actually want the, the parents involved in, in the education system at all. There's so much in what you just said, um, you know, with with parents needing to be a partner in education. That, frankly, you know, I'm not American, I'm a Canadian, but I, I know that that's how America succeeded when America was leading the world. Um, and maybe you still are, arguably, who knows? But when America led the world, it was it wasn't during mass schooling times. You know, it was during those times that parents were passing on those skills to their children. Um, to have parents not involved in their child's education is is just – I can't believe that we've come to accept that as a society. Um, our parents, we see them every day. Um, there's a conversation in the morning. There's a conversation in the afternoon. And sometimes there's more conversations than that because they are critical partners to what we're doing. Um, back to the money piece – you know, I had a principal come in um, for one year. Well, I just I took a step back and just taught and, and kind of took a step back and, and was able to, you know, view what was happening at the school I'd founded. And then I jumped right back in again. Um, but when he was there, he said, you know, this is an incredible deal. And it is because people might save for their kids college education. Well, guess what? By the time the system's done with your kid. He isn't going to want to go to college or she isn't going to want to go to college. Spend the money now when it's important. And you know what? Kids coming out of Headwaters Academy will have the ability to start a business. In fact, some of them already have. And they'll have the ability to you know, fund their own post-secondary education if they want to do that. Um, we are a school that keeps that option open. Um, but we are also a school that says, you know what, that is not something you have to do. You can choose post-secondary if it's going to make sense for you. But you know what, if it's going to make sense for you to go out and run an excavation company when you grow up, so be it. You don't need to go to post-secondary to do that. Um, yeah, agreed. That's, agreed. That's and I also think the kid that comes out of a school that teaches the independent thinking like you are, if they do go to college or university, they're going to wreck the hell out of the grant and, and scholarship world. It, it amazes me how much grant money and scholarship money gets doesn't get doled out every year because nobody applies for it. Um, I, I remember listening to a young man called in Dave Ramsey, and this is when I was in the call every uh, the car every day. And it, I listened to him in the afternoons on the way home. And so I heard this kid call in at the beginning of his summer and the end of his summer. And he was trying to figure out how to not go too deeply in debt for four years of college. And he was a good student and all, and he, you know, but there was a cost to it. And he was talking about getting a summer job. And Ramsey told him, you'll never make enough money working in the summers 
to really pay for the kind of education you want. He said, but if you look at applying for scholarship and grants, like it's your job, you'll make way more money that way and you don't pay no tax on it. <laughs> so yeah. he basically gave this kid a formula, said, you know, you need to work every day, apply for at least this, I don't remember what it was, at least this many grants, at least this many scholarships, get this book or you know, use this website or whatever it was. And the kid ended up calling him back like in August and said, that he had enough money to pay for at least three of his four years from that summer. And I'm like, you know, and people say, well, what if everybody did it? They're not. They're not going to. Don't worry about that. Like, there's so much of that available to someone that actually sees it like a job. When you look at what post-secondary institutions want in a student, they want... A headwaters kid. I have a kid right now um, that you know he is is he ten years old, um, and we're working on his ninth grade math. Um, <laughs> it's been an incredible battle, and still here in Ontario, he is doing the ninth grade math course for um, the second time now. Not that he failed the first time, but we just didn't have it recorded properly. Um, but we signed up with you know a third party provider, and he's doing this and doing it with great success, mind you. And they will not give him the credit. Only because he's 10. And so what we have to think about is, well, how do we work around that? That is the system perpetuating itself is what it's doing. They're going to make sure that he's going to have to sit with a bunch of less inspired students, not by their fault, but because they went to less inspiring institutions. And, you know, a bunch of people who aren't nearly as um, gifted at math. He is obviously gifted at math just because they said so. So our plan will get through the grade nine. We'll get through the 10th grade, the 11th grade, the 12th grade. He'll have all that done before he hits 9th grade in age. Mm -hmm. And then he'll take it to the post-secondary institution and say, look at what I've done. Yep. And not just going through those hoops, but maybe doing you know a piloting course at the same time. Yep. Um, some of those things that they're going to say, you know what, look at what he has achieved. We want that kid. Um, as opposed to, you know, look at this 3.8 GPA or, or whatever it is. Um you know, that doesn't really tell you that much about the student. Yeah, I was listening to a conversation between some associates here in Texas, and the one is a homeschooler. And his his daughter was 16, and the other gentleman was, you know, trying to be understanding, but clearly didn't really want to understand. Because he said, well, how is she going to get into college? And he's like, well, by the end of next year, she'll already have 30 credit hours. So she's already in college. And the guy didn't know what to say to that. Like, he had no idea. And then he kind of tried to pick on the fact that the girl was going to community college. And it was like, it didn't go well for the dude. He tried, and it was just, it was, and the, the guy he was talking to that was defending his decision and his daughter's education wasn't mean about it. He just gave him facts, and it was... It was like watching somebody run into a wall, but almost like Star Trek or something, like where they don't, it's a force field, and the person runs into it and can't accept that there's really an invisible wall there, and they just run back again and again. That's what it was like. I mean, there's, th th that is the solution often, is you go, you go straight into the university system. Yeah, or like your theme song says, which I, I have on my, uh, my USB, I'm not quite fancy enough to have it on my cell phone, but, uh, you know, make your own way and the others will follow. 
hmm. you know, because the revolution is you, you know. That's what we need to do um, because the system is big. The system is huge. The system is powerful. But there is another way, and that's what we're doing. There's thousands of ways, man, you know. And, like, the other side of that is there are so many – career paths right now that they don't really care about college. They kind of default to it. But if they're presented with candidates that come through another educational path, they're all over it. They, they default to it because Karen and Human Resources is cut and pasting job application proposals. That, that's why they default to it. Um, it means absolutely nothing to me. I've had, I've had two jobs in my career path that not only required degrees, uh, one preferred a master's degree, and the other one ef effectively required it. I didn't have a degree for either one of them. I've never spent a minute in a college classroom in my life other than as a guest lecturer. It, it didn't matter when the skill set and the ability to back the skill set up was there. And I think that's becoming more, not less, true. And I think that's why the institutions are doing, they're like a dying beast now. They're doing more than ever to try to hold on to it. Yeah, there's you know there's a great diversity of people. One of our teachers does have a doctorate. Um, I have a master's. There's nothing um, wrong with that. I'm not yeah I'm not putting yeah, it down. I, I came out. Yeah, I came out and uh, you know I had to build a deck here when I moved back to this house I owned for a number of years and I couldn't do it. <laughs> so you know you do need I think a balance. Well, you just need to think. You know we talked about the the return on investment of post secondary and it can be there or it may not be there. Right and um, That's important for that truth to come out, I think. Um, also, one more thing it made me think of was uh, a principal that uh, my first job actually was in Toronto Boys School, and uh, his name was Ian Robinson. He said, look, our students are not going to be finding a job. They're going to be creating a job. That was 10 years ago. It's still true today. I do say that quite a bit because I think it's absolutely true. We are not producing students who are going to go find a job we're producing students that are going to create their job. And that's just the way of the world, um, if you want to be successful. I, I don't know anybody that's going to argue that that's, um, you know, I guess you can still go be a doctor. There's a few things you're going to get a job. Um, but mostly, you know, you need to think your way around this ever-changing uh, atmosphere and, and conditions that we're in. There, there is creating a job even when you go to work for somebody else. Uh, there's two types of people that I would hire when we weren't hiring back when I hired people. And one would be the person that walked in with a proposal of how they could add to my bottom line. You know, like sales was was classic for that. I, here's business, I'll walk in the door. When can you start? Like, what's his qualification? You know, a partner going, what's his qualification? I don't care. He's either going to succeed or fail. We're going to put him heavily weighted on incentive compensation, and he's either going to do what he said or he's not going to make it 90 days. Done. Or a person that would come in and talk to me about a job, and the first thought in my head when that person walked out that door was, I do not want this person going to work for my competitor. If I felt that way about somebody, I would find a freaking position for them. I would sit down and partner with them to create a position for them. If I don't want you working for my competitor, or you can immediately impact my bottom line, we're talking. And that's creating a job in another way. You, you, you can go even into the, the, the classical job market. That is a more convenient path or it may be a more proper path for some people. They just do better in it, um, even if they're very motivated and self-starting. Or like you said, they can create businesses. There's, I think that the problem is we've, we've pinned people into a place where they feel like there's a very limited number of options. 
go to high school, go to college, get a degree, and then here's kind of this portfolio of jobs that you can get. And that's just not the real world. We live in a world of billions of people, and there's billions of options out there. Yeah, it, it's a promise that, you know, there was that promise. Go to school, you know, go to college, come out, get a job, and you'll do as well or better than your parents. Um, and it's just simply not true. Um, and we have, unfortunately, a lot of people that, you know, buy into that and, and find out, you know, they're, you know, there's nothing wrong with a coffee server if that's what you're, you know, what you want to do. But, I mean, there's people that are serving coffee with a degree behind their names, and that's not what they intended to be doing. Um, and, and I think it's very upsetting for them. I, I can only imagine it's very upsetting for them. I'm not one of them. Um, but, you know, that somebody should have said something different along the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's time for education to realize these truths and to tell these truths. And maybe they realize it but aren't telling it. I don't know. Oh, I, the I, system I, seeks to perpetuate itself, right? Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe for a minute they don't know it. I think that, like, did the, the, the institutions of education are doing the exact same thing the institutions of politicians are doing, trying to get through their tenure and kicking the can down. I don't think there's anybody in there other than the, the like the, the the lowest of low performers that doesn't understand that this is archaic, it's outdated, it doesn't work anymore. And but if you're five years from retirement, well, I I don't want this happening while I'm here. I think there's a lot of that going on. But then you you know as that group ebbs out, there's the new group that's ebbed in, and the more they become vested the more preservation becomes a necessity. Because any of these um, systems of flux come with a massive painful period during the flux. So nobody wants to be in the car when it wrecks. Everybody's okay in the car you know, before it wrecks, and everybody's okay with let's do the body work on the car after it wrecks. But nobody wants to be in the car during the wreck, even if the car needed to wreck because it was an old car. Like, you see what I'm saying? Hundred percent, hundred percent. What has surprised you most in opening your school? What was the biggest like wow thing that happened that maybe you didn't expect? Well, there's a decision that we made um, that was just the reality of the area. You know, I, I grew up in this town that's got about 700 people, and and so we knew that unlike a Toronto-based school, we weren't going to have you know applications for admission you know in stacks. And so what I said, I said, you know what, let's just accept every age, you know, we accept anywhere from five years old to 14 and we'll make it happen. And that's the one room schoolhouse. You know, that's the concept that we had in Canada for a lot of years. And I know in the United States for a lot of years, and it was obviously led by the wayside in terms of economics and, and, you know, building this system that, you know, everybody can learn the same thing at the same time. And the strength of the one-room schoolhouse is probably the thing that surprised me the most. Um, this is what, you know, between that and the small class sizes, this is what brings our students such a great amount of success. You might think that 13-year-olds are not excited to be with the 5-year-olds, but you'd be wrong. Um, you know, they love their position. Obviously, the 5-year-olds love, you know, being uh, involved with any child older than themselves. But they take great pride in supporting each other. Um, and we often forget as teachers at Headwaters, 
what grade our students are actually in because it just doesn't matter. What matters is what do they know today and how are we moving them forward to grow to tomorrow? And so it's funny because, you know, I'll right this time of year, I'm doing admissions calls. We have, um, you know, two openings for this coming year. And, you know, I'll be talking to families and they'll say, well, how many children do you have in grade one um, or first grade as, you know, usually in America, they like to say first grade. But I'll, um, you know, I'll have to think about it uh, <laughs> because I actually don't know. What I do know is where this particular kid's math is, where that particular kid's language is. And we'll group them up like that in so many different ways during the day. Um, that the whole thing, it's, it just turns this concept of, um, what teachers college taught us, you know, you're going to have this plenary session and a, you know, a diagnostic assessment, and then you're going to do the lesson. It just turns that right over. Um, it turns it on its butt and it says, you know what, here are these kids in front of you right now. Let's make something exciting. And we change on the fly. You know, I literally come in in the morning and I might've had an extraordinary idea on the way to work. Katie will say the same or one of our other teachers and we'll change the schedule to fit our kids. Um, we may even see when we get there in the morning that they need to go for a little bit of an extra run, you know, and we'll do that. Um, so that small one room schoolhouse with the kids working together, um, I don't know why we ever got rid of it, to be honest, in education. Obviously, it was many years even before I went to school that we got rid of it. It probably should have been kept um, because it works and it works extraordinarily well. Um, and I, I'll, I'll throw a stat out there. Um, we do a standardized test, and our students in mathematics on average are three grade levels ahead of their um, peers in Canada. Um, and in language, every single one um, was a grade level ahead um, of their peers in language. So we know it's working on those statistics, but more important than that is who these kids are. You know, they are friendly. They are outgoing. They talk to adults. They talk to older kids. They talk to younger kids. Um, that is really, I think, the, the most important thing that we're doing. There's a lot in there. I mean, on the mathematics alone, I can look at it simply as I can think back to like high school. And the last thing you wanted to do was get called up to the blackboard to do a problem if you didn't know it because you were a dumbass because you didn't know it. Like everybody's out there snickering at you because you didn't know how to do it. And with the size of the class and the lack of attention, you know how math is. If you don't fully learn a concept, you could let's say you can get through it, but you really didn't learn it. When you go to the next concept and it's building on the previous one, you get more and more lost. So with the one-room schoolhouse, the, the kid that's behind, maybe not even behind where they should be, but just doesn't know this thing, like the other kids that are a little bit ahead, and maybe it's just because they're older, are there to help them. I mean, another thing with th that that comes down to is lack of division. This entire way that we divide children in our school system, so it's first graders, second graders, third graders, fourth graders, you know, the big kids are mean, that type of thing. Like, we stratify them. They don't speak to each other except maybe if they end up at resource together or something, and they're, they're completely separated and segregated, right? So if you want a cohesive you know, join society, it doesn't operate from a standpoint 
of, of being separated and stratified, then what you're doing is what you want. If you want a separate, separated and stratified society, what they're doing is what you want. So I don't think it's a mistake on their part. I think it's exactly what they intended uh, to, to accomplish. On the language, it completely stands to reason that a, a multi-aged classroom would, would end up creating students who excelled at language. Because one of the ways many of our modern languages and dialects developed was as civilizations came together and their children intermixed, the children literally created new words, new concepts, and language. So you're just kind of doing that on a micro level within the context of a specific language where they're not creating it, but they're mastering it together. So all of that makes sense for the small, multi-generational, I guess you'd call it, multi-grade classroom environment. Um, Quite scientifically, honestly. Yeah. Well, you reminded me of, of two stories. Just um, well, one from the kids, and then one that I got. Uh, actually, I'll tell the parents. But you know, we had a new student come in mid-year last year, um, and he didn't put his hand up um, for too many answers right away. Yeah. And uh, one of the parents asked her son. She says, "Well, how's so and so at school?" And he says, "Well, he doesn't say much." He says, "But he just hasn't recognized yet that nobody at headwaters is going to laugh at him." Uh. Um, and you know, obviously, that was powerful. Um, another thing that happens at our school, um, I talked about this piece that they have. You know, this year there was um, one instance where they got in a little disagreement about. They're actually building a little village in the forest. Um, and I guess one of the lots, they had delineated lots for each other, and one of the lots had better resources than another one. Sounds like the real world, right? And so a couple of the girls, um, you know, they were upset and they left, and the other kids recognized that these girls were upset. And so they ended up having their own little town hall um, about it, and what they did was they took down the fences between the lots and they built one common building out of these fences. Um you know, it's obviously in a ch children's world, you know, it sounds like a, a communism in a good way. Um, you know, it might not work in real society, but it was just incredible. Um, and socially, what they have to do is accept and play with and be friends with. I don't say they don't have to, but they do. Somebody that's not like them, because when there are only 18 to 20 of them, you know, we actually have a very small school, 18 to 20 of them, then what they need to do is is be accepting of the people that are there. So they come from, you know, I guess, unfortunately, they can all afford that much tuition or they've decided to. Um, but aside from that, you know, we have a great diversity of different backgrounds um, of kids and, and talents and things that they're interested in. And if I compare that to myself growing up, you know, where I was hanging out with the athletes, you know, I remember the athletes table at high school. And I'm embarrassed that that's the only place I sat. Um, our kids don't have that. You know, there isn't an athlete's table. There isn't a chess player's table. There isn't a, you know, I'm trying to think of the other tables that there were, people that are into magic and, and different things. There isn't those different tables. There's just one table, and that's where they sit and they get along. Um, it's just, it's a far better way, I think, for children to grow up. I think that makes sense too, though, because, so imagine you take, 24 kids, you throw them all in the fourth grade together. Okay, they're all supposed to be equal. So you're creating, and when I say equal, I mean they're supposed to be about the same age. They're not supposed to be at the same grade level. They're supposed to be intellectually and somewhat physically equal. So you create immediately a situation that begets a hierarchy 
and that anybody that falls lower on the hierarchy must somehow be inferior because we're all supposed to be equal. So since you're not smart, you're stupid, right? And, and I'm, I'm using the words that get used in that environment. Or because you can't run fast, you're slow and you shouldn't be. Right, And so because you're short, you're weak, and you shouldn't be because by the time you're in fourth grade, you should be as big as the average kid in fourth grade. And you just take it at any permutation, that's where you end up. As soon as you say, well, we have kids in here from you know grade K through grade 8, all in the same room together, you're supposed to not be equal. They're supposed to be little kids, and they're supposed to be big kids. Big kids are responsible to help the little kids. Little kids want to grow up and be like the big kids. It takes the entire dynamic and guts it. It just it just guts out this entire competition dynamic and it leads to mutual support. And I've I've had a, like a lot of epiphanies with this lately dealing with a lot of like kids in like extended family, different age groups, etc. And seeing how that happens, it, it literally as soon as you put this multi-age component into things there becomes this instantaneous, because I think naturally, human beings, we do watch out for the weak. It's the weak that aren't supposed to be weak, I guess. is I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it, but I think there's something in the, the human mind that causes this idea of once a person's supposed to have been to a certain level and they're not, now there's something wrong with them. But when you create this you know, honest look, I think it's natural that the, the 13-year-old kid worries about the, the 7-year-old kid that's crying. Where if you put a bunch it's, of you put a, a class full of seven year olds together, seven year old cries. What happens? The other kids they pick on them. They what do you you know what are you crying for? It provides us with a, a canvas to you know fairness isn't equal. Fairness is that everybody gets what they need. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and our children understand there's a sliding scale of you know what we expect from each one. We expect there's one thing that doesn't slide is we expect their best. Every day, sure. all the time. But they understand that, you know what, this student, you know, this particular thing frustrates this student. And this particular thing, this student isn't good at. So they understand that there is some sliding scale around that. I remember a conversation I had with um, three students that weren't getting along. And there was one there that I said, you know what, you know that, let's call him Joey, you know that Joey has trouble with this and you didn't inform Bobby that Joey was getting upset. You know, and yeah, that's a lot to ask from a kid, but I think that we need to. And it it means that he's going to be giving his best not just on an academic, athletic and all those other things we're doing, but also, you know, people talk about this emotional learning and unfortunately that, you know, they're trying to build programs around it. I think just some honesty and truth sometimes um, is what will really bring that about, and it's working for us. Absolutely, I bet. Um, moving away from the traditional cur uh, curriculum, have parents who grew up under one, uh, you know, is there like a balancing act there? How, how do you do that where a parent it kind of expects that there would be some conventional curriculum? Yeah, I, I, I talked about that a little bit earlier when, you know, we had to record how what we're doing matches or not just matches but exceeds um, what's going on in the traditional environment um, it is a challenge um, it's an ongoing challenge because you know that is what we're conditioned to believe we need to be doing 
um, is what's in the traditional curriculum. And it's not that we're throwing it out. There's some things in there that are darn right important. Um, but what we're doing is saying, you know what? It doesn't make sense. You know, there's some of it that doesn't make sense. You know, if, if I have a five-year-old that can count to a hundred, why would I stop them at 100? Um, why wouldn't I teach them the base 10 system all the way up to a million? You know, it just makes sense to do that. Or why would I stop them at addition when, you know, if I have 10 groups of 10, that makes a hundred, you know, I can show them that and provide this, you know, incredible breadth of, um, breadth of experience and, and depth of understanding to them. Um, there is no reason to do only what it says in the book. Um, and you know, I would say it's a, it's a transition parent period for parents. Um, the first immediate impact they see is a happier kid, a more fit kid, um, because our kids are, you know, at least two and a half hours outside per day. Um, and a more exhausted kid at the end of the day in a good way. Then they see a quick kid that asks questions. And then eventually after a few months, they say, Oh, okay. Well, I get what you were doing right there. Um, because I will have parents say, you know what? You know, Bobby was super really confident in his mathematics and came home and, you know, he didn't understand it for the first time today. And, and that, I understand that that's difficult for a parent. And I'll say, you know what? That's okay. We want to take him forward. Then we'll step him back, take him forward again. And so there is a period of trust there. It's usually about six months that we just have to say, you know what? Just hang with us and you'll see it. And then they do. And at that point, you know, our parent community is probably the most supportive community in any school I've ever seen. Um, and uh, and they help inform each other, too, that, you know what, just trust in the way it's going and uh, it'll work out. So um, critical thinking is is a big thing with what you're doing. Have you taught kids maybe things like we talk about here that maybe even their parents might be like, hey, what are you doing there? Like, you know teaching them about debt-based paper money or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, they, they understand Bitcoin. Um, oh, all cool. of our students understand Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, it was actually something I did a few years ago, um, and I realized that this was something that uh, the children should understand. Um, and then, therefore, they should understand where a dollar actually comes from. I, I wouldn't say that <clears> – <throat> pardon me. I wouldn't say that that one's gotten me in any trouble. Um, I did a lesson on critical thinking towards the end of the year where we took on global warming. Um, and I know there's some major critics of global warming out there, but you know, what we did was we looked up everything we possibly could. We asked the hard questions. Um, and some parents came back and said, what are you doing teaching my kid that global warming doesn't exist? I said, that's not what I'm doing. I said, I asked them to take a look at it. Right. To yeah. look at the data, to question it. And we even called in, um, we have a, a is actually the museum curator loves our students so much, um, that he asks to come back. And so they have him on speed dial. So they called him in and he did a thing. And, you know, the point wasn't to take climate change and, and throw it under the bus or, you know, to say it doesn't exist. Um, because the truth is we maybe just don't know. The point was to say, let's ask some questions. Um, and I think that the basis of that is when there's a question to be asked from somebody that's a supposed authority, ask the question. You know, don't just accept authority. At the same time, you know, when I say something at the school as a school's founder um, and as the person in charge, 
don't question that authority. Just do it. You know, yeah. it's it's a fine balancing act, and you need to kind of sometimes accept because I said so when it's a benefit to you as an individual. But basically, everything else should be questioned. So the carbon tax that our prime minister here in Canada is putting out. That is one that, you know, we looked into as well. And what we find most of the time is there isn't necessarily an answer. And society wants answers. And so they'll accept what any expert tells them. They'll say, you know, this is good for you. And they'll go, okay, great. It's good for me. But our students are comfortable with there not being an answer. You know, there isn't a clear answer to a lot of these things that we struggle with as a society. And our students are okay with that and they'll gather evidence and make decisions and they're okay with disagreement as well. Um, and I think that's a critical part that's missing from society right now. We all can see that, you know, we're unable to disagree, but disagreement is good. Um, and not knowing the answer is something that actually should be valued. You know, we value the questions, the answers, you know, we, they're not as valued as valuable as asking the right question. Absolutely. I think that it also, getting people in that direction leads them to an understanding that the people you can't trust are the ones that get angry when you ask a question. Now, like you said, like in your school, you're the head of the school, you said this is the way things are going to be. There's a, there is a place for some level of hierarchy like that. But when we're talking about the whole damn human race being told a thing, and you ask a question about it, and instead of somebody being able to cognitively give a valid logical argument, you're told shut up, you're a conspiracy theorist, listen to the experts, etc. None of those are logical arguments. And I think that's why the institutions of the world, and I'm talking education, I'm talking science, I'm talking all of it, the trust level in them, in, in modern history anyway, I think is at an all-time low. And I think it's their own damn fault. I really do. I, and I actually think the trust being low is a good thing because That's the only way to get any kind of reform. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but I think sooner or later, if these institutions want to maintain any level of respect, any level of uh, authority and support and influence, they're going to have to reform. And I think there are big problems there. And it's not really a, a – I've learned more and more over the last year and a half. It is not a specific issue. Like climate change is a hot button one, you know. Um, but it's it's every discipline within science has the same problem. There's a dogma, and those who go outside that dogma or question that dogma are punished in some way, uh, or they're mocked, or they're just written off, or, or what have you. I mean, I've seen things when I've been I've been doing research into ancient civilizations where an archaeologist that has funding for his dig finds things below a, a, a level in time that are supposed to be there. And other archaeologists write a letter to the government of the nation where the dig's going on and ask to have it shut down. And there's your problem. Like, and, and I think that when you start asking questions and you get treated that way for what you know are legitimate questions, then you become ungovernable in a way. So I, I applaud what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, and that connection to other people and being able to ask them, like those You know, if those archaeologists find something that is, you know, against what the other archaeologists found, ideally the first archaeologist would say, okay, well, let's have a discussion about this or let's study this together. Well, let's dig it the hell up and look at it, right? Like, you, you would yeah. think that way. Holy shit, you found something, you know, earlier than we thought any humans were at this place? 
well, it could be wrong, but let's look at it. Not let's bury it, let's cover it back up, and let's write the prime minister of the nation and say, Here, we are 50 archaeologists who say this needs to be shut down. That's That almost sounds like a conspiracy theory other than it's right out in the open. It goes right back to that fourth grade teacher who I asked, yeah. her, why did this happen? And she threw me out. Yeah. You know, that cancel culture is not something that we accept at our school. <laughs> um, you know, you, you can't just shut something down because you don't know or you don't want to know. You know, that's 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 not appropriate. At, at the same time, we are very careful to steer away from some things that, frankly, I don't think children need to know about, you know, at the age that some sure. of these things are being thrown on them. You know, we have a, a residential schools issue where the natives were abused and, and a whole bunch of terrible things happened here in Canada. That's not something that I need to be teaching my seven-year-olds about. Um, and unfortunately, not many people are willing to stand up and say, you know what, the seven-year-olds don't need to know that. Um, but that is something that we're very, you know, we question and we're willing to learn, but we also do say, you know what, maybe there's some things that seven-year-olds don't need to deal with. <laughs> no, I completely agree. Yeah, there's this desire, I think, to force things into children younger and younger. And I, I, I go back to this indoctrination. The younger I can introduce an idea, the more I can make the idea take hold. I think it's it's definitely social engineering, and I, I agree with you on that. Um, what has been the reaction of the overall community to your school? I'm sure parents are happy, because uh, if they weren't, they wouldn't keep giving you money to educate their children. But like the surrounding community. Yeah, well, like like you said, our inner community is super, super happy. The outer community, um, you know, the biggest challenge in, in my area um, is, and I grew up with, you know, of little means, um, and that's still true of a number of people. So, unfortunately, that one piece that we can't have is, is if you don't have the means, you can't attend the school. That's just a reality. Um, so we had to be very careful to be kind of what I call a private school with a public purpose. And, and that is to share whenever we can um, with the community. Um, and that's been, you know, we've, we've done that with our service um, projects, you know, with the local seniors home and a few other things. Um, what takes us, what's slower to take hold is just how exceptional human beings our students are. Um, when we call the bus company now, You know, they, their drivers want to be on our field trip because they know that when our kids get on the bus, they're going to say good morning and they're going to greet that bus driver by name and they're going to shake their hand and they know that they're going to, on the way out, they're going to say thank you, you know, and they know that the students are just that way. That's just how they're going to be. And, and so we get people like bus drivers wanting to be part of it. When we're doing this small engines unit, I put out a call for, You know, anybody that has just a boneyard of engines you want to donate. And a lot of people did. And they said, but can we come and work with the kids as well? And I said, of course you can. Right. That would be exceptional because we get to learn from everybody. And so those things build over time. You know, I talked about that museum curator who says I want to come back. Um, even our uh, member of parliament for this area, which I guess is almost equivalent to a governor in the United States, Um, he came and visited, and then he said, can I come back? Um, he requested to come back to work with these kids again. Um, so, you know, that's a, a snowball effect that's slowly taking hold. And it's just because our kids are turned on. And I think we've spent an hour now talking about why they might be turned on. 
to the world. Um, and people want to be involved with that because let's face it, that's fun. That's engaging. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't romanticize this job, but a kid's smile, um, is actually payment enough. Um, and, and that, you know, that, that's what we have. We have smiling kids who are engaged and, and want to learn from others. Awesome, man. So, um, tell people how they can learn more about what you're doing. Uh, so we do keep a pretty good stream going on Instagram. I believe the Instagram handle is Academy Headwaters. Um, Facebook, we're at, um, you know, facebook.com backslash Headwaters Academy. And our main website is headwatersacademy.ca. Um, and people are welcome to uh, email me through there or better yet, my number's there. Give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to them. Well, hey, Mark, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today, and, and thank you for the work that you're doing and influencing you know, kids that are going to grow up and, and be the leaders of the future, man. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I hope that uh, it helps people see that you know, homeschooling is a great idea and that there are other options, too, to escape the system and uh, to make sure that our kids um, have the best opportunity for tomorrow. Well, like I said, that was one of those uh, discussions where, um, you know, You, you both learn things from each other. That's what you call constructive conversation. Before I wrap up with our sponsors, I want to let you guys know something. I have COVID. Yep, I have COVID. Um, I have not been tested, but I don't feel the need to. My wife um, had worse symptoms than me. She was having a really, really bad sore throat and uh, to where it hurt to even swallow. And I was having some flu-like symptoms too, and I'm like, you know, with us both having symptoms, maybe we should go. You should go get tested. Uh, she did. They gave her a steroid injection. Her test came up really quick on the positive. Um, so, you know, odds are we have COVID. I mean, I know that we can't trust the test 100%. This seems like COVID. We're all fine. Um, I, I've, I, I mentioned this in my Miyagi Mornings live stream today, not during the podcast portion, but during the, the live stream video. The only reason I'm really telling y'all is I figure, one, y'all might want to ask me some questions about it, and two, um, I feel like a level of journalistic integrity here. Um, I am not for everybody walking around with a face diaper. Uh, I personally have decided not to get a vaccine. I am not anti-vaccine. I have I have weighed the risk-reward calculations. Uh, none of my opinions on any of this stuff has changed. But you can't go around saying that stuff, then you get COVID and you don't tell anybody. So um, I've had symptoms since at least Saturday, maybe more like Friday. Um, my wife and I both feel like we've kind of turned the corner on it already. Mine was never that bad. Hers was pretty bad from a standpoint of pain with the throat. Uh, to where she was almost crying to swallow. Uh, otherwise, not so bad. I mean, it's it's weird. I, so anyway, I'll say this. The reason I'm pointing this out is I'm probably going to do like an Ask Me Anything live stream tomorrow. And I'm probably going to do it like on Float and Odyssey, not on YouTube. Because if I speak my mind about COVID on YouTube, I'm going to get the video taken down. And I'm going to get another strike on my account. And if I get two more strikes, they're going to delete my account on me. So uh, they're also going to suspend me if I get another strike. So I, I don't want that to happen. Um, eventually, I'll, I'll see no use for YouTube either. But for right now, it still helps me reach a lot of people. So while I've walked away from Facebook and Twitter, I have not done so yet from YouTube. Uh, again, my plan in the future is to, but not yet. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be bounced for something when I flat out know they're going to do it. So. Uh, I'm going to probably put out a blog post today before the email goes out as well. Um, 
but I will provide uh, in that post the time and the places that you'll be able to hear them. I figure I can do that tomorrow because now I'm not going fishing because it's not right of me to go infect Omar. Um, and the podcast is done tomorrow already. And I, like I said, I know y'all will have questions. There were a few people that seemed pretty concerned during the live stream and giving me advice and all about what to take. I, I know what to take. We're good. We're, we're both on hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Uh, we were prepared to do that. And as far as any other information, I'll give it out tomorrow. But if you, if you have any question about, well, who does he look like? Is he okay? Go look at the video I did today. And I, I was telling people, like, I was chatting with people before the video actually went live in the live chat. And I'm like, you're about to see how okay I am. And I've had this for the last two days that you've been watching me do videos and listening to my show. And if you can hear me right now, I'm not even hoarse or raspy. But there is some interesting ways this affects different people differently. And, I mean, the way I'm coming away from this, shut up about your vaccine. I've had COVID. I'm more immune than the person who's had the vaccine now. That's that's how I feel about that. So, anyway, um, with that, let's go ahead and, and wrap up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that I do, um, you can uh, always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And, uh, boy, do I have one for you today. But the issue is... If you order it today, you're going to wait for it for like a month because um, it's sold out. But fortunately, when this, unlike the, when this usually happens, this is a smoking deal. And even though they sold out, they're still taking orders and they're still honoring the sale price. This is the Nesco Smart Pressure Canner. It was it was known as the Carry Electric Pressure Canner. Uh, and then Nesco bought Carry out. So Carry, Shard, Nesco, all the same thing. It's the same product. It's the same one I own. The retail on it's $130. Bucks. Um, it's been on sale before for around a, around $100. It is on sale today for $80. Bucks. That's 38% off. I put this out on Telegram and social media. Um, people bought it like crazy. I'm not saying I'm the reason it sold out. I'm saying I'm a contributing factor. Uh, if you're not on Telegram or social media with me and you didn't get that information, a lot of times when this ha this is why I say the Telegram, the Telegram channel is the way to go because the people that got it on Telegram had the, the, the most opportunity because if you're, if you use Telegram and you don't shut it off, you'll get the alert on your phone whenever I send a text, just like you do a text message. And, uh, but I'm, I'm glad it's still available. If you have any questions or concerns about electric pressure canning, because you read some article that's, that's based on information that's 15 years old about a product that's been on the market for six years now. Six years. Hundreds of thousands of people using it for pressure canning. No problems, no lawsuits. Read the article. I'm not going to get into it today. The show's gone pretty long already. But this product made me enjoy canning again, because I don't enjoy canning. Uh, I don't do a ton of canning, but this lets me do, you know, four quarts at a time of, you know, different things and mainly meats because pressure canning you need to do for meats. And it works flawlessly and it has over 20 safety features built in it. And if everything's right, not right, it won't even start up. It'll just sit there and, and give you an error code. It's probably the safest way to can that there is. And it does a lot of other really great things too. Think of it like an Instapot that does pressure canning. And does even more than that. It is a great... I, I cook ribs in it. Uh, I par-cook sometimes things that end up going on the grill to tenderize them. Uh, it is fantastic. It basically works as everything from a pressure canner uh, to a pressure cooker to a slow cooker. 
and 80 bucks, guys, it's a deal, even though you have to wait for it now. Uh, if you've been wanting to get one, I recommend you get it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day today. And I've been sticking with songs that are, you know, anti-lockdown type, anti-COVID restriction type songs. And Van Morrison's going to pop up three times this week. He popped up on Monday, even though it was an Eric Clapton song. Morrison wrote the song and played guitar during the recording of it with Clapton. Uh, then yesterday I brought you an independent musician. Today I'm bringing you Van, and tomorrow I'm bringing you Van. You know why? There ain't enough musicians standing up against government crackdowns, which means music ain't what it used to be as far as being the thing that was the counterculture. Anyway, today's song is called Born to be Free. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. They know we were born to be free Don't need the government cramping my style Give them an inch, they take a mile Take you in with a phony smile Wouldn't you agree? And you normal, it's not normal no kind of normal at all Everyone seems to have amnesia Just trying to remember The Berlin Wall Some kind of new old ideology A weird new psychology But it's not for the benefit Of you and me No, no, no Seem to have amnesia Trying to remember But the Berlin Wall Is some kind of new Old ideology Running tandem with the weird Kind of psychology But it's not for the benefit Of you and me We, we were born to be free Cause we were born to be free Cause we were born to be free